Before we start today's episode, I've got a number that you can call or text with questions and comments. Hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a message. I'll be sure to get back to you. All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And lift off, the final lift off of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. Today I've got Richard Easton, the co-author of GPS Declassified, and we're going to be talking about the history of this system. Um, Richard, welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate you coming on. Great to be here. So let's start off today by going over a little bit of just the uh, technical side of GPS. It's something that all of us take for granted, um, myself included, even though I rely on GPS uh, from my iPhone pretty much all the time. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, technical history? Well, GPS is a Department of Defense program run by the Air Force. Uh, Technically, it's supposed to have a minimum of 24 satellites in 12-hour circular orbits, inclined 55 degrees. Uh, Currently, it's using 31 satellites. And when the ground OCX is up and running, more, more satellites will be usable. But right now, we're limited to 32, and they generally use 31 so they can switch one in and out. Um, they are, they use atomic clocks, mostly rubidiums in the satellites. Uh, they're, they're updated from ground stations to keep all the clocks in sync. Um, GPS is a passive system. So, uh, like radio waves, an unlimited number of receivers can receive it. And since it started out as primarily a military system, Passive system is critical because the receivers do not give off any information, uh, which obviously for military applications was critical. Uh, GPS stems from the early space program, the 1960s, and um, the system itself started in 1973. Uh, It really had its baptism by fire in the first Gulf War where it performed very well with primarily civilian receivers used by the military because there weren't enough military receivers. And now, uh, when we wrote our book, uh, published in 2013, the best estimates were somewhere around 100 million, uh, I'm sorry, 100 billion in uh, annual savings enhancements in the U.S., coming from GPS. And today, the more recent estimates I I see is it's a billion dollars a day. So in increased GMP, efficiency of farming, trucking, et cetera. So it's one of the few government programs which has really paid for itself. We're spending about a billion dollars a year on GPS to date. It's been a little while since I looked at it, but I think we spent 45 to 50 billion so it's it's a system which has really 
the rare government system, which is paid back multiple times for the taxpayer every year. Well, yeah, I mean, and the fact that it's become so ubiquitous and it's something that we just kind of take for granted, just it really speaks to the success of the system. Yes. And when they were trying to sell it in the predecessor systems in the 60s and then GPS starting in 73, there was a lot of skepticism. There were several GAO, Government Accounting Office reports, which were highly critical of it. So. It uh, it had a difficult gestation. I think it turned out all right in the end. <laughs> yes, it's it's. Uh, 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 of course, the joke today is that new people appear all the time who claim that they played a critical role in GPS. <laughs> it's kind of like Al Gore saying he invented the internet. I guess. <laughs> yes, Su- success has many fathers. Failure is an orphan. Yes. You know, and uh, so I, I'm glad we got that kind of technical uh, background there. So, I mean, the, the fact that it's a passive system uh, and, and I really appreciated uh, the history of like the military side too, the the passive aspect of that, um, that was really interesting to read about. I also really appreciated the, you know, the chapters that covered navigation as well before GPS. So it was really an interesting way to get some history on um how navigation was used over the centuries. And in uh, one of the chapters, you've got a uh, fictional conversation between a commander of a Coast Guard cutter and the uh, famous Captain James Cook, a native of the 18th century. And could you talk to me a little bit about how you relate or how why you wrote that passage um, in the book and how it relates to a technology that we take for granted, but luckily we have the technical knowledge or, you know, the technical schooling, at least to understand some of the aspects of GPS? Well, one thing to remember is in the 18th century, you know, Dava Sobel is famous for her wonderful book, Longitude. Now, one of the major problems was um, figuring out what your longitude was. Uh, The British had military catastrophes during one of their wars against uh, France. And they set up in 1714 the Longitude Prize to uh, come up with various awards, depending how accurate you were. And the two major solutions were John Harrison and his clock, you know, his series of clocks, which you can see in Greenwich, England, and I've been there a couple times, uh, versus the astronomical uh, solution of taking lunars. Now, GPS, in a sense, combines both solutions. We put atomic clocks in artificial satellites, um, which obviously something that uh, they couldn't conceive of in the 18th century. But GPS is a time synchronization system. Uh, My father's system was called timation for time navigation. If you have synchronized time, You know, in a sense, Harrison's clocks were a time synchronization. Uh, You look at local noon and you compare it with the time on the clock, say, set to Greenwich, England, and you know where you are in terms of longitude, either east or west of Greenwich. And GPS itself is a time synchronization. You know what time the signal left the satellite. And if you have synchronized time to tell you what time you receive it, 
you're on the surface of a sphere with, uh, you know, light travels uh, 186,000 miles per second, or I think it's 300,000 meters. So if the time took to go from the satellite to the receiver is a tenth of a second, you're 18,600 miles from the satellite. With four satellites in sight, you can get your 3D position plus your time synchronization in your receiver. So GPS is is a time synchronization system, just like um, Captain Cook was using a copy of Harrison's watch uh, on his voyages and found it very useful in terms of determining his his uh, longitude. So, so in a sense, we're doing a bridge in the story, in the brief story of uh, Captain Cook trying to understand how GPS and a modern ship works versus what he had in the um, 18th century. Yeah, it was just, it was a really great little uh, kind of anecdote um, that I, I really appreciated. It just, it kind of drives home this, how much has changed over the last couple hundred years. Um, it, one thing you mentioned too, and this is something I wanted to touch on is uh, your dad was actually involved um, in the creation of Timation, as you were saying. Tell us about how Timation and other projects eventually morphed into what we now know as GPS. My father started working on the space program in 1952. He worked at the Naval Research Lab from 1943 until 1980. And in the late 40s, Milt Rosen started his Viking program, not the later NASA program. This was doing sounding rockets. And um, Dad joined them in 52. And the first launch he saw wasn't supposed to be a launch. They were doing a test firing of Viking 8 in June of 52, and the major contractor, Martin, changed the way it was bolted down. Dad said the method should have worked, but there was so much vibration from the rocket that it took off during what was supposed to be a (laughs) test firing. And Dad said poor Milt Rosen looked about as upset as a man could ever be. Um, But uh, Martin gave them the next rocket, Viking 9 at cost, and uh, Milt survived. I met Milt in 2009. Um, So we have the International Geophysical Year from 57 to Mm -hmm. 58, and all three services put forward proposals, Army, Navy, Air Force. And um, as you mentioned in a recent recording, uh, the Navy one, which von Braun was not happy with, and um, so Sputnik 1 beats mm-hmm. the U.S. on October 4th, 1957. And then there's Sputnik 2. And TV3, Vanguard Tests Vehicle 3, blows up on the pad in December 57. So um, Von Braun's team puts up Explorer 1 in January 58. And then the first Vanguard successful launch is on St. Patrick's Day, 1958. And the Vanguard One, uh, which my father designed, he used to tinker with it on our dining room table. Um, That's the oldest satellite up there. And uh, from, he worked on the mini track tracking system and the small 
test vehicle satellites, which were, you know, three and a half pounds, six, something like six and a quarter inches mm -hmm. across. And, um, but he realized that that Minitrack depended on detecting a signal from the satellite and the Soviets would soon launch spy satellites. Minitrack was uh, basically from Blossom Point, 40 degrees north to Santiago, Chile. Uh, so a north-south system since uh, Vanguard and Explorer and the Russian R-7s were launched to the east to take advantage of the Earth's mm -hmm. rotation. But he figured that a, a spy satellite would be launched into polar orbit since as the Earth rotates under it, it can eventually see the whole Earth. So for that, an east-west system which did not depend on detecting a signal from the satellite was vital. And in 1958, he started his Naval Space Surveillance System, three uh, powerful transmitters, including one, I think about 150 miles from where I am, Lake Kickapoo, Texas, basically 33 degrees north from, from California to Georgia. And um, it, it was one of the early programs that ARPA supported, Advanced Research Projects Agency, mm -hmm. now called DARPA. Uh, they, they started working on it in June of 58, detected the first satellite in August. And, and this system was like kind of a, a fence almost, right? Yes. Yes, a space fence. One amusing story, uh, there was a program called America's Most Secret Structures. And in 2013, I was about to pick up my wife at the airport, and I see on cable what secret American system is along 33 degrees north. And I said, gee, that's, that's probably <laughs> space surveillance. So, so I set up my DVR, and when I got back, sure enough, they're talking about space surveillance, and they have this using it for space warfare but it happened that was the month in which they decommissioned space surveillance. So it was very funny watching this paranoid program about a, a system that was was being decommissioned. All right, everyone. So we had a little bit of a technical difficulty last time with the podcast recording software that I use. Um, and Richard and I got uh, separated <laughs> for the recording. Um, so last time uh, we were talking about the space fence. Um, and Richard, if you could just pick up where we left off uh, last week. Well, the, um, the space fence had the advantage over Minitrack that it could track satellites that were not emitting signals like mm -hmm. uh, like uh, Soviet spy satellites. And it had three transmitting stations along 33 degrees north and six receiving stations. And in the early 60s, there was a requirement to upgrade it, add a second receiver and a second, another another transmitter and receiver station in southern Texas. And for to turn it into a radar, uh, the time synchronization needed to be better. Uh, so Dad needed to synchronize the two stations in southern Texas and uh, transmitting the, the signal from one to another over the horizon was noisy. Uh, 
a cesium atomic clock to drive from one station to another that it drifted during the time it was taking. Mm-hmm. And a hydrogen maser was too expensive. So he came up with the idea, gee, if I put a clock in a satellite, it can synchronize uh, both stations' times. And a month later, he realized, gee, that would make a good navigation system. His timation system mm-hmm. uh, stands for time navigation. And the the initial idea, the work in southern Texas took place in September 64. And then in October, the realization it would make a good navigation system. And the first test of it was on October 16, 1964. Matt Maloof, who was an engineer at Naval Research Lab, uh, drove his convertible down the unfinished 295, which goes right by NRL. Uh, and the, um, the people at NRL could tell when he was changing lanes, which uh, surprised <laughs> Matt. Wow. Um, but the actual, uh, I found documents revealing that it's it's actually a little more convoluted. Um, in 2006, I found a reference to a memo 112 and asked my dad about it. And he found it, it was revealing in June of 64, he was discussing atomic clocks and the use for a NAVSAT. Um, so he sent it to me with a note saying, this completely undoes my recollection of how timation came to be, but sometimes you need to have a good idea more than once for it to stick. And then I found a memo from 67, which refers to it starting with a discussion in 1960. Well, it doesn't give the date, but I have a separate chronology that says it was April 64. Discussion of hydrogen masers, which were developed in 1960 between my father and Dr. Arnold Shostak. Uh, some people may know his son, Seth, who works on SETI. They were talking oh, wow. about the hydrogen maser and that it made passive ranging, which again is the time differencing. If you know how long the signal takes to go from the satellite to the receiver, you know how far you are away from the satellite. With four satellites in sight, you can get your 3D position plus your time synchronization. And that's how timation works. That's how GPS works. You know, it's a long involved process, but uh, basically in 64, uh, Chester Klesak and John Yob, Chester was a family friend, uh, they were able to give a grant of $35,000 to start timation. And even in 1964, 35000 wasn't a lot of money, but it made it an officially sponsored program. And, and that was important. And the area where they worked, Naval Air Systems Command, was also funding transit the first NAVSAT. And to get more than 35,000, Yob would have had to go up the chain of command. And he was worried that uh, transit advocates would kill it. So you had bureaucratic infighting at the very beginning. I remember reading that. And that's so interesting that it was the limit that he could authorize. And it's interesting to think what the future would have held had he not authorized that and gone up the chain of command to get more money. So I think it's it's kind of interesting that they, you know they were bootstrapped there at the beginning with a limited amount. 
but the end result was, I think, what it needed to be. <laughs> yes. Uh, when we published the book, the best estimates we could find was that GPS was generating uh, around $100 billion of increased efficiencies to just the U.S., and that's civilian applications. And today, yeah. I've, I'm more recently seeing a billion a day. So wow. 365 billion from GPS in the U.S. alone. For $35,000 initial starting. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> uh, great things have small beginnings. <laughs> you know what? What's one of the things that you wish more people would uh, know about the history of GPS? Just kind of changing gears here. Um, you ask an author that I'm, I'm going to give you, <laughs> I'm going to give you more than you ask for. I'm going to give several, right. <laughs> several answers. Um, one common myth is that Reagan opened GPS to civilian use after Korean airliner seven was shot down in 1983. Mm -hmm. And, um, there was a civilian, well, signal opened to civilian and military use on GPS from the very beginning. And uh, civilian instruments, receivers, were being built a couple of years prior to KAL-7. So, in fact, probably the very first applications were by surveyors. So, in 1978, they launched the first four Block 1 test satellites. And I think it was two years later, two more. So, if you're talking about early 1981... You've got six satellites in sight. At any time, you might have, well, they're, they're in kind of a constellation, but they're not going to be constantly available. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the requirements for modern GPS is 24 satellites total. Um, so you might have one or two you know, in sight, but if you're a surveyor, you just put up your instruments and you wait for the satellites to come in sight. Yeah. Um, you're, you're just, you're not interested in navigation. You know, they talk about GPS as a PNT, positioning, navigation, and timing. Um, so you're just interested in the P part and uh, you can just wait for the satellites to go overhead. So, so that's, uh, that's one aspect of GPS that's very poorly understood. Mm -hmm. Another one is that timing was unexpected. The timing synchronization, uh, you know, was an added plus. You listen to my dad's system, time navigation. Well, his second satellite in 1969 was used to synchronize time between the Royal Observatory and the U.S. Naval Observatory. So they were syncing time very early on. And in a... 1974 interview, he talked about GPS creating the time web, a worldwide web of synchronized time. So, so the T part of PNT, that was anticipated from the first. And there are the more controversial things like uh, the first head of the GPS Joint Program Office, Brad Parkinson, who did very good things. Mm -hmm. we, we owe Brad a great deal of thanks for GPS's success, but he claims that GPS was created at the Lonely Halls meeting at the Pentagon over Labor Day 1973. Um, and that they 
wrote a September 4th document um, you know, discussing what they decided that mm-hmm. weekend. I don't have that document. I've been trying to find it. Uh, but I do have a September 21st addendum to it. And um, it's posted on our website, gpsdeclassified.com. You go under resources, and we've got a, a number of primary source materials. And it mentions um, three scenarios that, that came out of Lonely Halls, none of which are GPS. Uh, they all look like the Air Force's Project 621B, which it varied a little bit over time, but basically it was for regional constellations of one satellite in synchronous or geosynchronous, however you want to call it, orbit. So it's, you know, it's at the equator remaining roughly over the same longitude. It's rotating 24 hours. And... Um, three or four ha- satellites at high inclined orbits. So that would be a, a 621B constellation and probably four regional constellations. Uh, you didn't need to have accurate clocks in the satellites. That was one advantage, hmm. but it was also a huge disadvantage because uh, the regional constellation, the European constellation, you need to have a ground station in the same area. So in case of war, the Soviets yeah. could attack the ground station. They could jam the uplink, an atomic bomb. The the constellation, the 621B constellation, the satellites are relatively close to each other. So one atomic bomb in orbit could blow out your constellation, whereas wow. Timation was um, either 24 satellites at, at 12-hour orbits, which was GPS, or 27 at 8-hour orbits, circular orbits inclined 55 degrees, which GPS, circular orbits inclined mm-hmm. 55 degrees, that, that makes it very simple to adjust f- for the relativity's effect on the clocks in the satellite compared to on the ground. Hmm. And... Uh, the one thing that the Air Force did add, which was important, was refinements to the signal. Uh, both, both systems would use spread spectrum, and the Air Force in its work uh, elaborated with CDMA, which is very beneficial. But you look at GPS and timation, and it's a lot closer than 621B. Uh, McNamara made the Air Force the lead in space. Mm-hmm. And in April 73, uh, a memo went out saying the Air Force would set up a joint program office headed by the Air Force. Uh, they didn't yet have the name GPS, but basically to def- develop the defense navigation satellite system. Hmm. Uh, Parkinson took over 621B in November of 72. So he was the obvious choice to head the JPO. And in August, he went and pitched uh, 621B to the powers that be, um, DSARC. Um, They turned him down. One thing they said, it was too expensive and it wasn't really joint. Uh, Any of the armed services could veto it. And the Navy was worried, well, they were worried it was too vulnerable because of what I just described, yeah. it wasn't truly worldwide. 
And, you know, the Navy has ships everywhere, pretty much all <laughs> over the earth. Yeah. They wanted they wanted GPS to replace previous systems. So so Parkinson pitched 621B. He got turned down. He did have a meeting at the Pentagon over Labor Day. But the three scenarios in the September 21st addendum all look like 621B. Not the Navy story <laughs> is that they had another meeting over Labor Day in which Captain David Holmes and my father pitched timation. And you look at scenarios four and four A in the addendum, they look a lot more like timation. So GPS and and GPS. So GPS was not created at Lonely Halls. Um, we have the document to prove it though almost nobody seems to be aware of its existence. I will be linking to it in the show notes for sure. I I have the resources page up now and you have a lot of really awesome documentation there. Yeah. I mean, one of the claims is that Timation was two-dimensional. A Timation development plan from 1971, you have a, a diagram showing four Timation satellites sending signals to an airplane. Which is exactly how GPS works. Yeah. So, so, uh, but the myths, um, you know, some powerful people put forth the myths. And unfortunately, you know, the average journalist won't know anything about the history of GPS. That's kind of the same thing that happens, like we were chatting about on Twitter. The same thing kind of happens with uh, Skylab sometimes. There was a Harvard business case study that claimed there was, <clears throat> excuse me, that claimed there was a mutiny on board Skylab. And the reality is there was no mutiny, but it's one of those things that the stories still crop up every couple months. <laughs> we see, you know, something in Discover magazine or space or, you know, like the astronomy magazine websites. And it's like, no, that really didn't happen. <laughs> Here's the facts. But it's, I guess it just takes people doing the yeoman's work of consistently reminding the public that, hey, here's what actually happened. <laughs> yes. And and frankly, sometimes reasonable pe- reasonable people can disagree. Sure. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're talking about how important is the signal versus having space-hardened atomic clocks on satellites, uh, a secure signal versus that on GPS, obviously you need both. Mm -hmm. And to land a man on the moon in 1969, you needed the Saturn V, you needed an uh, Apollo capsule that was, would work well. You needed the lunar module. I mean, of course, one of the reasons why Apollo 8 went to the moon was that the LEM was not ready. Mm-hmm. So so any complex system, you need a number of things to work in order for the overall system to work. Exactly. And it's easy to exaggerate the importance of one aspect of it. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's it's not just the Saturn V that got the astronauts there. There was a whole lot of other moving parts. And that's that's what I found really interesting about the book is just learning about all these little things that culminated with the system that we have now. Um, and earlier you were mentioning too, and I just wanted to touch on this just because it's an interesting uh, little factoid is like some of the first GPS receivers in 2019 dollars cost like between $500,000 each and $750,000 each in 2019 dollars. 
Nowadays, you can pick up something like an Apple Watch for 200 bucks, and it's got GPS in it. Your phones are going to have GPS in it. And it's just, it's really interesting getting the history in this book of how things have changed over the last couple decades. And now knowing about the, the history behind the development of this, the, you know, the technology, the development, it's just, it was an awesome overview of the entire program. So I just want to thank you for doing, um, you and the co-author, um, doing an incredible job. Thank you. And one one aspect of the cost, I mentioned Chester Klezak. He and John Yobe, you know, were there for the original test in 1964. Um, and he was a consistent supporter of the system, as well as being a family friend. I remember going over to his house in the mid to late 60s, and he had three or four Cadillacs that he was in his yard <laughs> that he was fixing. Nice. Um, <laughs> But in the late 60s, Chester was asked how much a timation and then GPS receiver would cost. And he said, oh, probably about the cost of a color TV, which obviously in 69 was a lot more expensive today. But, you know, you, you're talking about an Apple Watch for 200 bucks. You know, obviously you can get a color TV for 99 bucks yeah. or something, <laughs> but but it's it's roughly comparable. So for... For a, a 1969 estimate, that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, just at how things have miniaturized, too, because that original box, I forget the exact dimensions, but it was like two feet by two feet by two feet square, and it weighed like over 150 pounds or something like that. And now it's you know, something that fits inside of a watch, <laughs> which is just Well, and of course, remarkable. the first Gulf War, um, you know, the, the Constellation was not complete. Mm-hmm. They they had a real shortage of military receivers. So the majority of receivers used in the first Gulf War were civilian. Um, Soldiers would buy them for themselves. They would have their families send them over. The military bought civilian receivers just because they they didn't have enough of the military ones. So the, um, the, you know, the interconnection between civilian and military uses is close. Uh, When my co-author Eric and I were invited to speak to Air Force Space Command three years ago, uh, the then commander, John Hyten, Mm -hmm. was concerned that his people did not grasp the, the breadth and overall importance of civilian uses of GPS. So, so we added we added slides to to illustrate that in more detail. So, um, so you know, high uh, and even in the very beginning, there was discussion of civilian uses, and they were trying to get the Department of Transportation, other departments, interested in it. Um, but only the Department of Defense had the deep pockets and and the critical need, you know. If you're talking about 1973, you've had the experience over the Vietnam War mm-hmm. of sending plane after plane to attack North Vietnamese bridges. And, um, you know, without precision munitions, you lost a lot of airplanes. Yeah. It was extremely costly. Well, I, the dual use technology, it's just it's interesting how many things we rely on, you know, like for 
space technology are are these dual use technologies that can be used for incredible private good but also for you know you know tools of war so it's just it really is it speaks volumes to the work that was done to make a system that not only can be used in peacetime, but also during, you know, a, a, a conflict. So, and of course, we talked about John Harrison and the um, the Marine chronometer. Obviously, the Royal Navy mm-hmm. in the 18th century became the dominant navy in the world. Um, so they needed accurate estimate of longitude, but also they had the merchant fleet. So, so the dual use civilian military uh, paradigm applied even back then. Yeah. Well, I th- I think that's a perfect place to end it. It's you know it, we have the you know, nowadays where we're using both for military and for private, and going forward into the future, there's going to be newer uh, GPS satellites launching that offer you know more accuracy, and it's going to be something that continues to be used by both the public and by governments. So. Richard, I want to thank you for doing just an incredible job on the book. And same with Eric, you know, pass my thanks on to him. It was a fascinating read. Um, I'll be linking to uh, the book in the, the uh, show notes so people can purchase it themselves. It really is a fun read. Thank you. I enjoyed the interview. That's it for this week. Be sure to subscribe to The Space Shot so you never miss an episode. I'd love it if you could leave a review in Apple Podcasts. They help more people find out about the show. I've also got a call-in number that you can call or text with questions or comments. Just hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a message. I'll be sure to get back to you. You can also connect with me at John Molnix on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All of these social media links are in the show notes. Until next time, I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.